You know, there's no feeling quite so traumatic, no feeling quite so painful as the feeling of abandonment. It's, it's one thing to be lonely, but it's another thing, isn't it, to know that that loneliness isn't going to get better. It's one thing to be unloved, and to be unloved is painful. But it's quite a different thing to believe yourself to be loved, to believe that someone has devoted themselves to you, to believe that someone is committed to you only to find that they've abandoned you, that that love has proven superficial and that love has proven false. Abandonment has a way of making our whole world dark, doesn't it? It darkens the world so that we become skeptical and cynical of the people that we meet and even of the good things that happen in our lives, even of the circumstances that are positive. We look at them and we are skeptical and cynical that they are actually good and that they are truly good or that a person is actually loving and truly loving. In Psalm 22, this is the place from which David writes this famous psalm of lament. Except he's not writing about the abandonment of a wife. And he's not writing about the abandonment of a child. And he's not writing about the betrayal of a friend. He's writing about the abandonment of God. And so he starts off in the psalm of lament with words that we're going to hear echoed this morning. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it that I look at my life and my life looks so bleak? Why is it that I look at my life and my life looks so void of love? Why is it that I examine my circumstances and my circumstances see no evidence of your hand, no evidence of your kindness, no evidence of your providence? And this morning we're going to hear those exact same words come from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God. And he is going to speak of an abandonment, of a desolation, of a forsaking that is more profound than any of us have ever experienced and ever could know. More profound even than David himself, who though he wrote Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wrote at the end of Psalm 22, a song of praise that the Lord would deliver him. So if you have your, your Bibles now, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27? Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be, begin in verse 45 together. So when you get there, if you would stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling out for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared 
to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Jesus is nailed to the cross at around nine o'clock in the morning. And for three hours, Jesus hangs on the cross, writhing in pain, a pain so intense that the Romans invented a word to describe this particular pain. It's the word excruciating. The word excruciating means quite literally of the cross because it was a pain that could only be described by what you saw as a man gasped for air as he pulled up on the nails, as the skin on his back was torn and his entrails on the verge of spilling out. And Jesus is hanging there on this Good Friday, and for three hours he rides until some changes begin to take place, some experience, some, some unique views, and some unique transformations in the atmosphere and in the, the people there and upon the Christ himself, some experiences that are unique largely to the Gospel of Matthew. So that this morning we're going to look at these experiences, and we're going to see at least three experiences of the cross that Jesus experienced. The first experience that we see is that Jesus is forsaken. That Jesus is forsaken. Matthew says that at noon, having been there for three hours, the sky begins to darken. That you, you can imagine there on Golgotha that day as those three criminals, or, or those two criminals plus the Lord Jesus, were nailed to the cross and against the backdrop of the sky as darkness, as a shadow begins to fall behind them. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, the minor prophet had written this, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This wasn't unexpected, this was planned, this was predicted, this was prophesied. And as Christ Jesus hung between those two criminals, we see the providence of God coming to bear here on the crucified Savior. It's not the only time that we see darkness as an indication of the very judgment of God. You remember back in Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 10, you have the, the plagues that have been coming upon Egypt to turn the hard heart of Pharaoh. And as the final plague before the angel of death is to visit all of the Egyptian homes and to take from them the firstborn from everyone who doesn't have the lamb's blood painted on the doorpost, there's a plague of darkness. A plague of darkness that sweeps over all of Egypt and commerce stops and, and politics stop and governance stops and farming stops. All of the homes of Egypt are bound on house arrest because of the darkness that the Father has sent. And on this day, on this day, the darkness means judgment yet again. On this day, the darkness means that the wrath of God is coming to bear again. On this day, it shows the anger and the hatred of God 
once more, except it will not come down upon the wicked people of Israel. And it will not come down upon the wicked people of Egypt. It will come down on God's own firstborn son. That the angel of death will visit the firstborn of God so that he might take upon himself the plague of man and receive the wrath of God as our substitute. And it's at this horrifying scene that we hear Jesus' famous cry of dereliction, his cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? Think of it. Jesus' life, he had been betrayed by a disciple. He had been abandoned by his friends. He had been convicted by his people. And yet on that Good Friday, he was orphaned by his father. Orphaned by his father. It is in this moment that Jesus knew what he had never known before. He knew loneliness. He knew the the brokenness of fellowship with the father himself. It's the first time that we have in the entire gospel account of Matthew in which Jesus refers to God not as father, but as God. My God, my God, not my Father, my Father. Because the Father, as Jesus hung on the cross and bore the wrath of man for the plague of man to defeat sin, is orphaned. The relationship fractured. The Father's comfort, the Father's care, the Father's answer withdrawn from the encouragement of His Son. It's impossible for us to imagine all that Jesus would have experienced in that moment. It's impossible for us to know the level of spiritual depression, the amount of of, of mental anguish, the amount of emotional distress that Jesus could have known in that single moment. But can you imagine? Can you imagine your dad is your best friend? You do everything together. Something good happens in your life, he's your first phone call. Something bad happens in your life, he's your first phone call. When you need encouragement, you call dad. When you need to encourage someone, you call dad. When you need counsel, you call dad. When you need to share life, you call dad. Then one day, one day in your lowest moment, one day you are falsely and wrongly accused of a heinous crime. You are framed as an innocent man for a crime that you did not commit and they put you on death row. And you call your dad and your dad doesn't answer your calls. You write to your dad from prison and your dad doesn't respond to your letters. Day after day, you wait for the guard to come in and to call you out for a conference, for a meeting, for the person that's coming to talk with you and everybody else has fallen away expecting dad to come to the jail. Dad never shows. Dad never writes a letter back. Dad never takes your call. In fact, what you find out is that your father, your best friend, the one to whom you have always modeled yourself after and admired and sought to bring honor and pleasure to, he was the judge that sentenced you. And you find out that you haven't received a letter from your dad, but the state has. The state has received a petition from your father that he might be the one to flip the switch on your electric chair. This is but a fragment, a fragment, a fraction, a shred of the distress that the Lord Jesus would have experienced in that moment. From all eternity past, perfect fellowship 
throughout the entirety of his life. Twice we see, once in Matthew 3, and again in Matthew 17, that the heavens split. The, the Spirit of God descends on the sun like a dove, and you hear the voice of heaven boom off of the mountains. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet here he is, in his moment of desperation, Here he is in his moment of agony. Here he is in the moment of his passion. And he looks and there is no father. And he cries and there is no father. And he reaches and there's no one there to take his hand. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should be careful. We should be careful to not see this as the gracious son and the overbearing father. There is a tendency, I believe, in the 21st century church and in the 21st century faith to see the Old Testament grumpy God and the New Testament gracious God, the the old father of the Old Testament that we wish we could put behind us and the the generous, overlooking, uh, the the generous, passive uh, God of the New Testament that's willing to overlook our sin and deal with our sin. But what we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that all of this is the Father's idea. All of this is the Father's idea. My salvation, your redemption, your deliverance from sin is the Father's idea. It was the Father's love. It was the Father's will. See, as we think about the cross, as we think about the the pure son writhing on the cross, what we have to understand is that the cross is the cost to God for God to so love the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that his only son might die, that his only son might suffer, that his only son might be deserted and orphaned on the cross, that I might become a son, that you might become a son. See, Jesus' cross is because of the justice of God. It's because of the justice of God. God had told Adam and Eve that if you eat of this tree, if you commit treason against me, if you show that your allegiance is to yourself and to this world, then you will surely die. But they kept living, didn't they? God had told them that he was a holy God, and they must be holy as he is holy, yet he had forgiven them of their sin. He had credited, like with Abraham, their faith to them as righteousness. He had been steadfast in his goodness and in his mercy and in his grace. He had not given them the justice that they deserved. And according to Proverbs 17, that would make him an abomination to himself. For to justify the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. And so there is the cross. There is the cross, and the cross is a cross of justice. But just as the cross is because of the justice of God, the cross is because of the love of God. God created us and provided for us, and he blessed us. Yet we rejected him. We rejected him. We returned kindness for meanness, generosity for self-centeredness, love with unbelief. Though God at every turn has provided for us, and though God at every turn has made clear his goodness to us, and though God at every turn has made clear his love for us, at every turn we have spat in his face. We have turned toward ourselves, and we have lived to do what we want to do and what we 
feel like doing, even though it is in opposition to who he has called for us to be. It is in opposition to God's very holy character. And so, brothers and sisters, the cross in his, is the result of his justice and of his love coming together. The cross is where the love of God and the justice of God intersect with one another. It is the cross that proves that God is unwilling to just overlook sin, but yet still willing to forgive sinners. It is the cross where God demonstrates both his righteous anger and his unstoppable love. It is the cross where God the Father orphaned God the Son that you and I might become his children, his heirs in the kingdom of God. It is the cross in which the Lord Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I might one day be able to say that he is our father who will never leave us nor forsake us. We live in a day that says, what about me, don't we? What about me? But I want you to think about this, that God orphaned his son that he might adopt me. And how does that transform our thinking in the midst of a culture that is constantly saying, what about me? My coworker gets a raise. My response is, what about me? Someone has the health that I want, better health than me, and I say, what about me? Someone has a better, a better marriage than what I have, and I say, what about me? Someone has better behaved children, and I say, what about me? Someone has the baby that I want, and I say, what about me? I look on Facebook, and Facebook is filled with examples of the life that I am entitled to, the life that I deserve, as everybody else looks so happy. I look to heaven, and I say, oh God, what about me? But when we visit the cross... When we visit the cross, it's another question entirely. When we visit the cross, the question is not what about me? The question is why me? Why would the Son of God die for me? Why would God the Father pay the price of my sin with His Son? I am not worth righteous blood. I am not worth the Holy Son. I am not worth his purity and I am not worth his inheritance and I am not worth his seat and his kingdom. Why me? Except that God has deemed it so. God has said that you are worth the price of pure and innocent blood. God the Father has said that you are worth the price of his son. Ligon Duncan said it like this. God does not love you less than he loved his own son. Oh, brothers and sisters, open your minds, open your eyes to see who the Christ is is to see who Christ has come for you to be. Christ has died according to the justice of God because of the love of God that you might be brought into the kingdom of God. The first experience on the cross we see is that Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is forsaken. Next, I want you to see that Jesus is rejected. Jesus is rejected. Matthew was a Jew and he was writing to Jews. And part of the mission of Matthew throughout his gospel is Matthew is wanting all of his Jewish audience to be able to see and to recognize how many opportunities the Jews had to see that Jesus was truly the Messiah and how many different times they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. 
He wants you to be able to see how God was so good to you and so gracious to you and so apparent to you. And yet you still, you still remain steadfast in your unbelief. You continue to harden your heart time and time again. You'll see in the text where it says, uh, this man is calling Elijah. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now, we, it doesn't say explicitly that this is the Jews, but we know that this is the Jews because the Romans would have had no framework, no, no context to understand or to believe that Jesus was crying out to Elijah. They probably, at a distance, heard him say that Aramaic saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that, that Eli, Eli, it probably sounded to them a lot like the Hebrew name of Elijah. And there was a superstition at the time among the first century Jews that because Elijah was the prophet of God that did not die a natural death, but rather was taken up into heaven on a fiery chariot by God that devout men, pious men, in the middle of their distress and in the middle of crisis could beckon the name of this old great prophet that had called down the pillar of fire, the missile of fire upon the altar, and that he, he would buttress their strength and help them overcome their distress. And so what they probably believe is that Jesus has taken them up on their offer. Remember what they had told him? We saw this two weeks ago. They had told Jesus that, that if you'll just come down off the cross, if you'll just come down, if you will save yourself, then we will believe that you are the Son of God. If you will come down off of the cross, then, then we will believe that you really are the Messiah. If you will deliver yourself, you who say you can deliver so many others, if you will just do this, then, then we'll, we'll acknowledge that maybe there's something to this. And so they probably see this as a last-ditch effort by Jesus, calling, beckoning the floor of heaven that God might send Elijah to come and peel him off of that cross. But their response, so their response is, let's see. Let's see. Let's just sit back and see what's going to happen. Let's just sit back and see. So, so basically, they're seeing Jesus writhing, crying out this cry of dereliction. They're saying, good luck. Good luck, bro. Wish the best to you. We're going to sit here and we're going to watch you fail. We're going to sit here and we're going to watch you crash and burn. But you know, let us see. Let us see is the profession. It is the proclamation. It is the declaration. It is the posture of unbelief. They were telling Jesus that what they needed from Jesus is they needed him to do more. God had given them the scriptures. God had given them miraculous works. God had given them the authority of Jesus' language. God had given them the very word incarnate in their presence and they saw all that Jesus had done and all that Jesus had to offer and how perfectly he had fulfilled the word of the prophets and they see it all and they say, what? We need more. We need more. Let us see more. Give us more to see that our hearts might be softened, that our eyes might be opened. Give us more. That is, Jesus wasn't impressive enough to them. Jesus wasn't convincing enough to them. His miracles explained away. His, his teaching doubted and dismissed. They kept looking to Christ. They kept hearing Christ's claims. And they kept saying, I need more. Brothers and sisters, does this not sound like us? Does this not sound like us? Constantly. We go to Jesus and we tell him, 
I need more. I need to see more. You want my obedience? You want my faithfulness? You want me to offer you all of my life? You want me to go where you're sending me and do what you're calling me to do? You want me to do all of that? I need to see more. I need clearer answers. I need it written on a chalkboard. I need a burning bush rolling up on Liberty Lane. I need more in my life. Have you ever noticed that we hold much more tightly to our doubts than we do to our faith? We hold much more tightly to our doubts than we do to our faith. We hold much more tightly to our unbelief than we do to our confidence in the Lord. We have anxiety. And in our anxiety, what do we say? I know what God has said he will do. I know what God has done in the past, but I don't think he'll do what he said he's going to do, and I don't think he's, he's going to do what he used to do. So, so we go to God in anxiety, fearing what is coming tomorrow, fearing what is going to happen in provision, fearing what's going to happen in our family, fearing what's going to happen with our children. And we're going to the Lord again and again, and we're saying, God, I just, I just need to see more. I just need to see more. I need you to be more convincing to me. We do the same with our forgiveness, don't we? We, we live absolutely oppressed by our own guilt, oppressed by our own sin. And we say, look, I, I know that God has said he will forgive sin through Christ. I know that God has forgiven my past sins through Christ, but he can't forgive this one. Not this one. This one's too big. This one's too heinous. This one's too unbelievable. This one's too overwhelming. Oh God, I, I can't believe it. I can't see it. I need more. Let us see more. See, that's why. It's faith that saves you. And it's faith that sustains you. Faith looks at Jesus' cross and says, I don't need to see more. I've seen enough. I've seen enough. When it comes to my worries, when it comes to concerns about God's provision in my life, I look at the cross and I see he provided for me his son. He provided for me his son. I have seen enough. When my job appears to be playing out and I don't know where I'm going to get a paycheck from a month from now, I look to the cross, the son that was provided, and I say, I have seen enough. When God calls me to go on mission, to go on a trip I can't afford to a place that I don't know with people that I haven't met and I'm afraid and I'm overcome and I don't know what to do and I don't know how it's all going to fit together. I look at the cross and I see the crucified Savior and I don't say, I need to see more. I say, I have seen enough. When I know that there's a friend that I'm supposed to share the faith with, and day after day, I sit and I pray for them. And I wonder, do they know the Lord? And I can feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit calling me to share the gospel with them. And yet I rationalize it away again and again. I am saying, let me see more. But I should look to the cross and I should see the Christ that has been provided and say, that is enough. Some of you this morning, you don't know the Lord yet. You don't know the Lord yet. And you're thinking, all these rules I'm supposed to follow, and all this book I'm supposed to read, and all these things I'm supposed to figure it out. 
No, 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 no. With the faith of a child, come to the Lord. Look at the crucified Savior hanging on the tree. And whatever your history is, whatever your background is, whatever your sin is, whatever's bearing down on you, look to the provision of Christ on the cross and say, I have seen enough. I give all of myself to him. I give all of myself to him. Faith looks at Jesus' cross and says, I've seen enough. These onlookers to the cross, they didn't have faith. They were resolute in their unbelief. They were determined in their unbelief. They rejected the Son of God, and then then they spiritualized their rejection. They spiritualized their disobedience. See, this was the hypocrisy that Jesus so hated and detested in the life of the Pharisees. This is the hypocrisy that that Jesus so detested in the leadership of Israel. Here's what they're doing. They're they're, they're talking about Elijah. They're talking about, look, we'll follow you. We'll we'll believe you're the Messiah. We'll we'll believe that you're, if God proves it to us. We We want to hear from God, not from some son of God. We want to we hear from the great prophet of the past, Elijah, not from the prophet that we're nailing to the tree. We, we want to hear from God. So, so they're spiritualizing. They're saying, if God will do this, if the prophet will come and say this, then we'll follow you. Then we'll know you're the Messiah. Then we'll know that you're the king of the Jews. Then we'll know that you're the son of God. They're being disobedient to the call of God. They're slaying the Son of God, all while spiritualizing everything that they're doing and saying. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so common in our day. This is so common in our day. God calls. The Spirit leads. And what do we say? Well, God did give us common sense, right? God gave me common sense, and and this doesn't look sensible. This doesn't look rational. Oh, does it blow your mind that the God who parts the sea and speaks into the world might call you to do something supernatural? God might call you to do something illogical, irrational, extraordinary, something that goes against the grain and against the culture, something that you can't do. But we spiritualize it. I've got a class to teach. I've got kids to raise. I know God wouldn't call me to do that. I just, do you think Satan is placing in your heart to go plant a church? Do you think Satan is planning in your heart to go on mission? Do you think Satan is planting in your heart to go to do great things from the kingdom of God? That is the call of God on your life. Stop spiritualizing away your disobedience. Oh, how easy it is. For churchgoers and small group leaders and elders and deacons and ministry heads to follow down the path of the Pharisees rather than the path of the Lord. How easy it is for us to spiritualize our sins so that we're excused from our disobedience. How easy it is to look at our pornography and spiritualize it away as victimless, harmless, and private. How many are greedy and tight-fisted with what they have, yet spiritualize it away as being prudent and earned? How many are unwilling to go where God is sending them, spiritualizing it as being responsible? How many spiritualize laziness laziness as Sabbath and materialism as deserved? No, no, no. Don't spiritualize your sin. Take your sin and drag it to the cross of Jesus Christ and put it to death. Put it to death. Finally, 
we see that Jesus is exalted. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is rejected. But ultimately and finally, the Lord Jesus is exalted. Verse 51, Matthew says that Jesus at this point had hung on the cross for six hours. For six hours. And after he had cried out in forsakenness against the darkened sky, he says that the, the ground begins to quake. He says that the rocks of the earth, they split open like busted watermelons. He says that there's in the temple a veil, a curtain. And y'all, we're not talking about drapes. We're talking about an 80-foot curtain that hangs down. And that 80-foot curtain that's, hang, that's hanging down isn't torn from the bottom. It isn't cut with a razor blade. It isn't cut with a knife or with scissors. It isn't the corruption of Jesus' disciples. No, with the very hand of God from heaven to earth, not earth to heaven, the veil is torn in half. So that we might see the glory of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. You see, the holy of holies, that curtain was built to form a cube inside of the temple of God. And that cube in the very innermost part of the temple formed the Holy of Holies, the manifestation of the very glory of God, the very presence of God in the midst of his people here on earth, like, the, like in the garden that the cherubim were, were defending once Adam and Eve are cast out. And only one time a year could one man, the high priest, come into the Holy of Holies to offer up an offering of sin on behalf of the people. There was no access. The presence of God is on earth, but people couldn't access it. The presence of God is in their midst, but nobody could go into it because if they went into the presence of God, His holiness would strike them dead. And so there it was in the midst of the temple and they were totally dependent upon a mediator, upon the high priest going and offering a sacrifice on their behalf and his purity and the purity of the sacrifice determined the purity of their worship before a holy God. But when at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit, the curtain that defined God's inaccessibility to sinners, the curtain that illustrated how far mankind was from being safe in the presence of God, the curtain that required a mediator to speak on our behalf was shredded, was cut in half from heaven to earth at the initiation of God by the hand of God. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the one in whom we can personally meet and fellowship and relate and come into relationship with God. And at the same time, Jesus is the great high priest. He is our mediator before God, except he is always righteous. He is always holy. He is always pure. He is always perfect. And he has, as our mediator, clothed us in his very own righteousness. And he doesn't offer up some goat or some bull or some lamb. No, because he is not just the temple and he is not just the priest. He is the sacrifice himself. He doesn't light himself on fire on a wooden 
altar. He has himself nailed to a cross to endure the very fire of God's wrath that is owed to mankind that he might exhaust his wrath, that he might exhaust his hatred. He is a sinless sacrifice for the sake of sin. He is a righteous sacrifice for the purchase of righteousness. He is an infinite sacrifice for those who are infinitely sinful. He is an eternal sacrifice for all of us who bear God's image and are therefore immortal. No special temple, just the true temple. No human priest, just the great high priest, no bull to to slaughter, just the worthy lamb that has laid down his life in a sacrifice that is once for all for each of us who will come in repentance and faith to him. Brothers and sisters, Christ has given you access to God. Christ has given you access to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Are you broken down and beaten down? You can come into the presence of a holy God and take comfort without fear. Are you guilty of the worst sins? You can bring your sins to God who is holy, the God who is just, and not be eviscerated, but be set free. Christ has given you the access. Are you struggling with doubt and unbelief? You can come to the Father. You can come to the Father. It is only because of the access given by Jesus that sinners can take comfort in the presence of a holy God. But you, you as a sinner, you can come to God. And you can take comfort. We have access. We have privilege. Because the son who was orphaned was orphaned for the sake of our own adoption. So when we gather in the access of the heavenward room, we are gathering at the table of God as the children of God. Oh, are you taking advantage of your access? Are you delighting in your access? Are you enjoying your access? God, give us eyes to see. We have the access. Matthew doesn't just want us to see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, no. Matthew wants us to see Jesus first as the sacrificial lamb, but soon as the lion of Judah. He says something strange, something that none of the other gospels record. Verse 52, it says, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Matthew's not content to leave you hanging as though Jesus were only a sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus died on the cross, but Jesus was not defeated on the cross. You can imagine, you can imagine that as Jesus' body stopped to breathe, as his heart quit pumping blood, that there was a party in hell. Satan believed that he had matched wits with God Almighty and had proven himself wiser, had proven himself more beautiful, had proven himself more worthy. He saw Jesus placed into the grave and being placed into the grave, the enemy believed that he had been victorious, that he had been, that he had triumphed. But here, here Matthew wants us to see. 
Matthew wants us to see the gospel, the power of the cross, to glimpse what the Christ has done. He didn't go to the cross to lose. He went to the cross to win. He went to the cross to rob the grave of all its power, of all its sting, of all its strength over each of us, that we might look forward to His resurrection, to His return as the Lion of Judah, that we might not walk in oppression and doubt, but that we might walk in confidence of the risen Lord. See, because of our curse, when we die, life ends. But because of the victory of the cross, Jesus dies and life begins. Jesus dies and life begins begins. And for all who will come to the Christ, for all who have eyes to see, if you come to the Christ who was crucified, you are at the very same time coming to the Christ that was raised and that will raise you. And that brings us to our friend the centurion. Think of it. There's a centurion, a Gentile, a Roman, in the middle of Jews, a bunch of Jews. There's an executioner in the midst of priests. And who in our story is commended? Who in our story is held high as an example to us? It isn't the priests. It isn't the pious. It isn't the the ethnic. It is the Gentile. It it is the executioner of the Son of God, the one who drove the nails through his hands and through his feet. It says he saw it. He saw the earthquake. He saw the the rocks bust open. He saw Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saw, as Jesus told a thief beside him who had reviled him and derided him, today you will be with me in paradise. He saw it and he said, truly, truly, this must be the Son of God. He had not had the scriptures. He had not seen what they had seen. He had not known what they had known. He would observed the same things that they had observed. So what was the difference? He could see. He could really see. Not just observe, but love. Not just read, but appreciate. Not just, not just watch, but delight and love. Jesus saves those who see. Jesus saves those who see. He saves those not who just read the scriptures, but who read them and love them. He doesn't just save those who attend church. He saves those who see the gospel in the church. He doesn't just save those who can pass a test about Jesus or pass through a baptistry. No, he saves those who recognize him as the sacrificial lamb and as the lion of Judah and thus say, you get everything. This morning, can you see? Can you see? Can you see Jesus? Can you see the Christ who came for you? Can you see the Christ that God offered at your delight? Can you see that you have access to Christ? If you can see the Spirit of God is doing something supernatural in your life, don't reject it. Don't blaspheme the Spirit. No, no, in humility and in faith, come to Christ. Christian, do you have eyes to see the wonder of the cross? Christian, do you have eyes to see the glory of the sacrificial lamb? Christian, do you have eyes to see the the power of the Lion of Judah? Unbeliever, 
You came in your indifference and you came in your apathy. Perhaps you came in your skepticism. But today, do you see? Do you see? Can you see? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and you, you will have access to God as a refuge, as a rock, as a pleasure. Let's pray together.